what I want to do in this message is to give you three reasons why you should do what the Thessalonians did, namely to believe the message of the Bible by receiving it as the very word of God. Paul says they did not receive it as the word of men. Now, of course, Paul knew the scriptures were written by men. He's not denying that. What he's saying is that though the scriptures were written by, by men, yet the origin and the authority and the inspiration of these scriptures is from God. It is God-breathed, and therefore truly the Word of God. And I struggled really with this message and what to do here. I was telling Brother Mike earlier that I thought about delivering a message on how to receive the Word as the Word of God, but I, especially thinking about some of the young folks, I really want to talk to you about why, why you should do this. And I mean, why would I do this? Why would I give reasons? You know, some well-meaning Christians would say that you should just give people God's word, and that's enough. You don't need to argue people into the kingdom. They would say God alone can open their eyes. They argue the problem is not arguments for or against God's word, but the heart which God alone can change. And on some level, I agree with that. I mean, I'm aware that the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, their foolishness to him, no matter how cleverly or well presented. But I have two good reasons why I want to give you these arguments to believe the Bible is the Word of God and why you should receive it as such. And the, the first reason is that God, in dealing with the heart, does not make an end run around the mind. That is to say, part of God's work is, in op is, is opening our eyes to see not only that the Bible is God's Word, but to see why it is so. Now, in fact, we're told that when the Apostle Paul went to the synagogue, and uh, now I don't know how to pronounce this word anymore, Thessalonica, Thessalonica. <clears throat> he went there to evangelize. Listen to how he did it. Now they came to this place where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures, opening and alleging, explaining and proving that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead. And this Jesus, whom I preached to you, is Christ. And we're told that some of those believed and consorted with Paul and Silas and some of the devout Greeks, a great multitude, and of the chief women, not a few. In other words, Paul is grateful that they received the gospel as the word of God, but that the way this happened was through preaching, which included, of course, not a little reasoning and explaining and proving. I like, you know what Martin Luther said when he stood before the emperor and uh, against the pope, he he didn't say, unless I am convicted apart from reason. He actually said, unless I am convicted by Scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have often contradicted themselves. My conscience is captive by the Word of God. So you see that you can hold a high authority of Scripture and yet reason with people. Uh, let us reason together, God in fact says. Now, that doesn't mean that we put reason on the same platform. Paul reasoned from the Scriptures. We uh, hold the authority of God's Word above all things, but surely God is not irrational and neither is his word. And it's right for us to show people that this is in fact the case. And the second reason why I want to do this is because some folks in our day have become convinced by arguments that the Bible is not God's word. And in that case, it is the duty of God's ministers. In fact, it's the duty of any Christian to refute these kinds of errors. This is what Paul tells Titus. He says, Titus, I want you to hold fast the faithful way. Actually, he's telling, he's telling Titus about the right kind of elder that he should ordain there in Crete. 
And he says, here's what they need to be able to do. Holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine to exhort and to refute the gainsayers. For there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped. So it's for this reason that I want to give you responses to common arguments that you'll hear today against the authority of Scripture. So for example, some people will protest that the Scriptures haven't been preserved. And so for them, it's a moot point whether or not this is God's Word because they say even if it was God's Word, it's been so corrupted in the transmission process that you, it's, uh, we can't even know that this is what the apostles wrote, for example. And this is an argument that liberals or seculars not only use, but also Muslims and Mormons. Another argument is against the authority of Scripture is, has to do with the claims of the supernatural. Of course, we live in a secular age that doesn't see any need for God. And so with this mindset, people just think the Bible is nothing more than a human book. And so this is an argument over the origin of Scripture. Is it ultimately from God or is it ultimately from man? Another argument that I want to deal with is the argument against its message. It's claimed that this book cannot be from God because it's an offensive book. It's outdated and it's useless. So I want to make an argument for you for the divine authority of the Bible with respect to its origin, its preservation, and its message. And my hope is that you will receive the Bible and its message, not as merely being a word from men, but for what it really is, the Word of God. But I want to make a couple of preliminary points. I promise I won't be here all night. You're wondering, when is he going to get to this? The first preliminary point is this. Do we even need divine revelation? I mean, can we figure this out all on our own? And as we think about this question, I think the times we live in should really prove the basic arrogance of that claim. The movement of thinkers from modernism with its confidence in the ability of reason on its own to discover truth to the place where we're at today, this postmodern world we live in, where there's a basic despair among thinkers. Can we actually know the truth at all? I also think about our own situation today. I mean, think about how much information we swim in. It's just staggering. Um, Statisticians used to deal with the problem of the paucity of data. And so they would have to create algorithms um, that could be give kind of strong predictions based on few data points. But now it's the exact opposite problem. They're, having a, they're, they're swamped with data. And so there, there's this whole data mining thing. And we live in a time where there's so much information at our fingertips. But has this solved the problem of knowing what is the truth? And I think the answer to that is obvious. I mean, think about detective novels. Have you, you've read a, a detective novel or you've watched an Agatha Christie show and uh, all throughout the program or throughout the novel, you're, you're thinking the butler did it or this person did it or that person did it. And you get to the very end of the book and the author gives you all this new information, totally changes the, pers- the perspective and you realize it wasn't the butler that did it after all. Someone else did it. And if I had known that information earlier, I wouldn't have read the rest of the previous part of the book. <laughs> but the fact is, how can you be sure that you have all the facts? 
How can you be sure there isn't some crucial piece of information missing that will overthrow your present conclusions? Arnold Schwarzenegger recently made some comments about the afterlife, which I found um, really illustrative of the way people think today. Someone asked him, tell me, Governor, what happens to us when we die? And here's what he said, nothing. You're six feet under. And anyone who tells you something else is a blankety-blank liar. Now, he sounds pretty certain when he says that, but ironically, he goes on to say this. He says, I don't know what happens with the soul and all this spiritual stuff that I'm not an expert in. But I know that the body, as we see each other now, we're never going to see each other after, again like that. I mean, what? what? I mean, on the one hand, you're saying you're not an expert with the soul and all the spiritual stuff, and you're, you're willing to pontificate over it as if you are. So out of one side of your mouth, there's this kind of humility. Out of the other side of his mouth, this kind of boasting arrogance. Even though I think the deliverances of science are probably to blame for this strange attitude, I mean, even the history of science should warn us against a headstrong insistence that what we know now is absolute, the absolute truth. You know, science tells us, well, we know something because it works. Well, Ptolemaic astronomy worked, and yet it was completely wrong. Newtonian physics was held for the longest time as that which explained everything until it didn't. And even today, the two major scientific theories, relativity theory and quantum theory, are basically fundamentally at odds on some level. And so there's something wrong there, which brings me back to my original question, how can we know anything about anything? And the fact of the matter is, we can't know anything really about anything unless we know everything about everything or unless we've received our information from someone who knows everything about everything and who always tells the truth. And my friends, this is exactly what the Bible purports to be. The Word of God who knows everything about everything and who always tells the truth. And if the Bible is the Word of God, this is the very best of news because it means that we really can know the truth about the most important realities in the universe. The second preliminary thing I want to say is the, pro- this, this, this pro- the problem of doubt. And I want to speak to you tonight, especially you tonight, if you're struggling with doubts about God's Word. And one of the things I want to say to you is I don't want you to think that uh, if you have these doubts that now God's not going to have anything to do with you. One of my favorite stories in the New Testament is the story of John the Baptist. And there he is in prison. Now remember who John the John the Baptist is. John the Baptist is the man that God raised up to announce the coming of the Messiah. He is the one who said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the one who baptized Jesus Christ. And yet John, of course, probably expected like everyone else that Jesus is the Messiah. He's going to come establish his kingdom on the earth right now, overthrow the Romans, and everything's going to be peachy. And now John is in prison for doing the right thing. And so he's, he is just, he's beginning to doubt. And so he sends to the disciples Jesus, and they ask, he says, I want you to ask Jesus this, because I'm really struggling with this right now. Are you the one who is to come? Or are we to look for someone else? Are you really the Christ? I'm wondering. I'm doubting. This is John the Baptist. And Jesus 
performs miracles. He heals the lame. He makes the blind see. He raises the dead. And he tells the, the disciples of John, you go back and tell John what you've seen. But here's the amazing thing. <clears throat> so he doesn't just cut them off and say, I'm not going to listen to you. and Go tell John to grow up. Instead, he reasons with them. He gives them reasons to bring back to John. But here's the, the, ama- here's the totally amazing thing to me. After the, the guys have gone, he turns around to the crowds. And Jesus said, you know what kind of man John the Baptist was? He was the greatest man who's ever been born. That is amazing. Jesus, the very next chapter in Matthew, it says, a smoking, you know, um, a bruised reed he will not break. That's Jesus. And Jesus, um, I don't want you to think that he's not going to have anything more to do with you because you're doubting. Now, I will say this. There's a bad sort of doubting. There's a doubter who's just looking for a reason to go on in their rebellion's God, but who's not honest enough to admit this. And they're using their doubts as a smokescreen for their unbelief. And maybe that's you. Maybe you're just looking for ways to poke holes in the claims of Christ to justify your treason against God. So on the one hand, I am sympathetic to the doubter who is genuinely perplexed about the claims the Bible makes, but who is also genuinely willing to follow Jesus if he is who he said he is. So how do you tell the difference between honest doubting and and dishonest doubting? And I think one way to do this is to do what Tim Keller used to tell skeptics to do. He said, doubt your doubts. If you're not willing to doubt your doubts, then you're probably not being honest. But can we justify this hope that in the Bible, God is speaking to us, that in it we have the truth about God, about the world, about ourselves? I believe we do. And I know that, of course, the only way any of us can have real confidence ultimately in spiritual reality is through the witness of the Holy Spirit in our minds and hearts. And so as I make these arguments, I'm trusting the Lord himself will give you eyes to see and hearts to receive the word for what it really is, the divine and trustworthy word of God to man. So I want to make these three arguments from the origin of God's word, the transmission of God's word, and the message of God's word. So first of all, the origin of God's word. So let's just for a moment assume the Bible's been written. The Bible as we have it right now is a reliable translation of the original autographs. Let's just assume that for the moment. I'll deal with transmission later. The Bible that we have in front of us claims to be the word of God. That's what it claims. Our text says that. Jesus, when he quotes the Old Testament, quoted it as having divine authority. He said, a jot or tittle will not be able to be broken or pass away. He said, a word of the God's, not a word of, of the scripture would be broken. He contrasted the Bible with the tradition of men and said, whereas God, the tradition of men has no authority over you, God's word does. The Bible claims to be God-breathed because its human authors were born by the Holy Spirit. So if the Bible itself is inerrant, inspired, infallible. But what about, coming back now to the origin of the Bible, what about the insistence of the secularists that God doesn't speak to us in a book? Or that God doesn't even exist? And I want to start here. Because if a person doesn't believe in God, it doesn't, it's not going to matter how much evidence there is that the Bible's God's book, they'll just rearrange the the, the evidence to fit their godless narrative. 
Now, I think atheism and agnosticism used to be relatively uncommon in our part of the world, but they're now more and more accepted ways of looking at the world. And I think one of the reasons for this is that somehow people have bought into this mistaken notion that science has buried God and made him unnecessary. But this is false. Science is useful. Science can explain a lot of things, it can, but it can't explain everything. In fact, science can't even explain itself. Science cannot explain the most fundamental realities of the universe, of human existence, and not even in principle. So we're not taking a God of the gaps um, argument here. And some of the things that science cannot explain, even in principle, are things like an objective moral order. (coughs) Science can't tell you anything about ought. It can only tell you what is. Science can't tell you anything about objective meaning or purpose in life or the value and beauty of love. I remember I was talking to a young lady who was an atheist who was struggling with, uh, with depression and hopelessness. And I was speaking to her. I realized very quickly I had nothing to say to her if she did not believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Well, she knew a lot about science, but the, the fact that her sufferings have meaning I can't say that to her if she doesn't believe in God, if Jesus is not risen. Science cannot tell us why there is something rather than nothing, although some folks try to do this with quantum physics. The way they do this is by by redefining nothing so that nothing is not nothing, but really something. And I would go further... Even scientific explanations of things, of the physical world, incomplete apart from the existence of God. So to say that scientific explanation of something makes God unnecessary, is like saying that you don't need Thomas Alva Edison to explain the light bulb because you can explain it in terms of physics and chemistry. Listen, God exists because the universe, God exists, let me put it this way, God exists necessarily because the universe doesn't. Now, some people today take the universe as a blunt fact. It just is because it is. But one of the big differences between God and the universe is that God, by definition, does not need an explanation, but the universe begs for one. The universe had a beginning. In, at some point in the distant past, all matter and energy, time and space, came into existence at a moment of time. What made that happen? Everything that begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause. And this cause of the universe has to adequately explain its effect. And such a cause would have to be timeless, immaterial, all-powerful, all-wise, and perfectly good. But that's just another way of saying, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. God is real. And then another reality that points to the divine origin of Scripture is this fact that Jesus rose from the dead. I mean, that God would create sentient beings and not speak to them, I think is probably ridiculous. But, But, so God, I think it's, we should expect God to speak, but then the next question is, but where has God spoken? Why not the Quran? Why not the Vedas? Why not the Book of Mormon? And this is where I think the fact of the resurrection of Jesus is so important. And my argument is basically this. If Jesus rose from the dead, he is who he said he was. 
He said he's the Son of God and Savior of the world. And if this is so, it would almost certainly follow that what he said about the Bible is therefore true. But we've seen what he said about the Bible. It's the Word of God. Now, how can we know that Jesus rose from the dead? Well, I remember one time I was talking to a guy about this, and uh, he told me, well, I'll, I mean, you've got the Gospels in Josephus, and he just wanted to just completely discount the Gospels. And I had to say, wait a minute. <clears throat> you can't discount the Gospels as if, as if they don't count. But I, I, th- I think you need to know that there are non-Christian authors from the first century, like Tacitus, as well as Josephus, and Pliny the Younger, who all attest to the basic facts about Jesus, that he lived in Judea during the procuratorship of Pontius Pilate, that he performed miracles, that he was crucified on the Roman cross, and that his followers proclaimed he rose from the dead. But our best information comes from the Gospels. Now, what do the Gospels say? They say that the tomb where they placed the dead body of Jesus is empty. They tell us that three days after Jesus died, he got up on his own two feet and walked out of the tomb and later ascended into heaven and was enthroned at the right hand of God the Father. Now, why should you believe the gospel accounts, though? Well, there, there, there are a lot of reasons here. Um, let me just mention a few. One is, you have all of these, you have it very well attested that multiple persons, for example, like the 500 in 1 Corinthians 15, 6, had experiences in which they saw the risen Christ. I mean, even, even listen, even atheistic scholars like Gerd Ludemann admit this is true. I mean, they've looked at, the, this, is, this is a historical scholar who's not a Christian, not even a theist, who sees the evidence that it is undoubted that in the first century, the fathers of Jesus claimed to have seen a resurrected Christ. Now, they have to go on to explain that away as kind of a mass illusion. But, I mean, how is that a really good explanation? I mean, that is not just... You would have had to have multiple people seeing what amounts to a mass illusion on different occasions, not just any illusion, but the illusion of seeing and talking to and touching and eating with the risen Christ. But then third, you, you should believe that this does really happen because the apostles who preached it were willing to die for it. And I think this is significant. Now, some people may say, but wait a minute, we know lots of people who die for things that are not true. So we know the guys who flew the planes into the World Trade Center surely believe what they believe, but they, we all think that what they believe was wrong. Yes. <clears throat> but here's the difference. The apostles, if Jesus did not rise from the dead and they made it all up, they would have known that what they were preaching was a lie. And so they wouldn't have believed what they were preaching. I understand people dying for something they believe in, but it's hard to see how the apostles would have, that they don't fit in that category as people who are just deluded. And then finally, you should believe it because the Gospels were written in the first century by Palestinian Jews, or in the case of Luke, by a man who got his information from Palestinian Jews, and they preached the Gospel in first century Palestine. Now here's, here's why I think it's so significant. Sometimes we, we miss this. The Gospels are full of detailed information. I mean, imagine if they had all been written, made up. <coughs> so for example, you have this story 
uh, about a, a man named Jairus who has a daughter who was sick that Jesus went to heal in the town of Capernaum and he was the ruler of the synagogue. You have all these details. Well, this gospel, I guarantee you, was preached in Capernaum in the first century. So all they had to do is, is go check that out. But the gospel is full. The gospels are full of details like this. And yet, so if this was just all a fabrication, all made up, how can you explain the fact that thousands of Jews in the first century in Palestine believed this message and became Christian? Well, a good explanation is that Jesus really derives from the dead. Again, what does this mean for us in terms of this question regarding the authority of Scripture? If Jesus rose from the dead, he is who he said he was. He's not just another prophet. He's not just another good man. He's not just another martyr. He is God incarnate. We can bank our lives upon what he has said about the Bible, and what he said about the Bible is that it is the Word of God. Amen. Secondly, let me talk to you about the transmission of the Bible or how the Bible's been preserved to our day. In our day, one of the most popular arguments made against the Bible, in the New Testament in particular, is that the Bible is the end product of what really amounted to a centuries-long game of telephone. Do you all know what I'm talking about here? If you don't, imagine a group of people sitting in a circle, and it starts with one person, and they whisper a message to the ear of the person sitting next to them, who, who whispers that message is supposed to to the next person. It goes around, and then when you get back to the person who started, you're supposed to see just how garbled the message got. <clears throat> now, you'll, you'll hear this. So they'll say, we can't be sure this is the original text because this is just, you'll hear this mantra, copies of copies of copies of copies of copies of copies. The problem with that is that's a very bad analogy. And it's, it's, a, it's a bad analogy on multiple levels. So first of all, in a game of telephone, nobody has a reason to preserve the message. In fact, the whole point of the game is to see how messed up it can get. <clears throat> but when the scribes were, were transmitting the Bible, they were absolutely committed to keeping it pure. So, for example, and you can see this demonstrated in history. So before the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in 1946 or around there, um, the earliest copy that we had of, the, of Isaiah dated 900 years after Christ, 900 A.D., so they discovered an intact copy of Isaiah in the Dead Sea Scrolls that dated 100 years before Christ. So this is now 1,000 years earlier than the earliest copy we had of Isaiah. And when they compare the two books, they're practically the same. So this is not just another game of telephone. And also in a game of telephone, each person in a circle could only know what the previous person said. But that's not the case of the text of the New Testament. Rather, a better analogy would be Really this, a whole bunch of games of telephone being played simultaneously where they're all not trying to mess up the message but keep it pure. Where each person can not only know what the previous person said but in some cases what the person two people before said. And you can not only know what people in your circle are saying but what some people in other circles are saying. And when you get to the very end, <clears throat> when it's all said and done, which is where we're at today, you can compare the end result of all the circles, compare them against each other at different stages. What do you think is the probability you're going to be able to recover the original message? I, I think it's pretty high. And in fact, this is what the science of textual criticism has found with respect to the text of the New Testament. 
on the basis of the textual evidence that we have, which is almost 6,000 Greek New Testament manuscripts, apart from the other early versions, sermons, and quotes from the church fathers, we can't have certainty that we possess the text of the New Testament as it was given to us by the apostles of Jesus Christ. Now, some people at this point may, may come in and say, okay, maybe so. Maybe the Bible is preserved, but it's, it's not complete. I mean, so, you know, you hear periodically um, people refer to things like the Gospel of Thomas, these Gnostic Gospels. But let me tell you something. There's, there's so much misinformation about that, so you'll hear these dumb things like, Richard Dawkins in his book, The God Illusion, says that the Council of Nicaea in 325 decided what the canon was. Well, the problem is, and Richard Dawkins could have just gotten this from Wikipedia, the Council of Nicaea wasn't even about the canon. Is that a totally different question? The councils didn't determine the canon, and later they recognized it. In fact, we know, and I would actually recommend Michael Kruger's book, um, Christianity at the Crossroads, we know that at the end of the second century already, 22 out of 27 books of our New Testament were, were used as authoritative scripture by the early church. And Irenaeus, a second century church father, said, you cannot have more or less than four gospels. You cannot have more or less than four gospels. And he's referring to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The reason why the early church did not receive the gospel of Thomas is not because they didn't know about it, not because it was suppressed, but because they recognized a junk gospel for what it was. They knew about it and they rejected it. And so listen, don't make a big deal about what the early Christians knew was a piece of trash anyway. Let me end with the message of the Bible. I don't remember when I started, so I hope I'm not... Wait, wait, anyway. What about the message of the Bible? Is it really hateful and hurtful? Well, I have to acknowledge at the, fa- at the outset here that the Bible has always been offensive to people who are in rebellion against God. The Apostle Paul put it this way to the Corinthian Christians, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the dispute of this world? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign, the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block, unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. In other words, there's an offense to the message of the gospel that we, we, we should not try to erase. On the other hand, that doesn't give Christian license to be offensive. But it does mean that we should not be surprised when the world, which hates God, hates his word. But there's more to be said here. The Bible's message is unique. It's not just another collection of human religious writings. And in its uniqueness lies hope for the human race. And I want to, as I end here, I just want to pinpoint a few points of uniqueness that grounds genuine hope that will not put us to shame. And in particular, I want to show you that there are three things the Bible teaches that makes the message of the power of God into salvation. The doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine of the cross, and the doctrine of sovereign grace. So first of all, the doctrine of the Trinity. 
The message of the Bible is a Trinitarian message. And this really goes for all the New Testament. I know the Old Testament is not explicitly Trinitarian because the Trinity, the, God has always been Trinitarian, of course, from eternity. But the doctrine was revealed most clearly in Christ. And it's like, I don't know if you've ever, if you've ever watched some, a movie where there's kind of this hidden thing that's revealed at the end. It's not like these detective novels where I actually hate, where they give all this extraneous information that don't, that don't really illuminate anything in the previous part of the book. And you just wonder why I wasted my time. But there are stories where there's this hidden thing revealed, but when you look back over the previous part of the movie or the book, you're, it, just, it makes everything make sense. The doctrine trinity is like that in the Old Testament. It's most clearly revealed in the New Testament. But when you look back over the Old Testament, you're like, oh, now that makes sense. When God says in Genesis, well, let us make man in our image, and so on. <clears throat> we have the angel of the Lord. But it's explicit in the New Testament. Matthew 28, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Or in 2 Corinthians 13, 14, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. The Bible very clearly teaches that the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God, that all three distinct persons, while the same in substance and equal in power and glory. And here's the thing. This doctrine of the Trinity is utterly unique among the world's religions. But it's this uniqueness that gives the message of the Bible the ability to give us hope. Now, how does it give us hope? How does this give us hope? But it springs from the following fact. The doctrine of the Trinity means that God does not depend upon you for love and fellowship. God has from eternity enjoyed the love and fellowship of the Holy Trinity. In other words, God did not create you because he was lonely. God did not redeem us because he needs us. He is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. Rather, salvation because it is a Trinitarian salvation, is not us giving something to God to bless Him. It is being blessed by God, who is an infinite fountain of blessing and love and fellowship. Salvation is God sharing with us out of the generosity and the overflow of His fullness. And if you want to see how this works, I recommend to you the 17th chapter of the Gospel of John. Now, to see why this is so important, I Think about how frightening it would be if God needed you. It would be a crushing burden that none of us could bear. You know, husbands and wives sometimes can ruin their marriage by the husband treating his wife or the wife treating their husband as God. The source of all of my needs and the source of all of my happiness, it becomes a crushing burden. But what if we became that for God? It would be a crushing burden. But God does not need us, and he does not crush us. His yoke is easy, and his burden is light. He gives rest to the weary and peace to the troubled soul. Where does that come from? It does not come from a Unitarian God who twiddled his thumbs until he created the world. God did not begin to love when he created people. Rather, he overflows in the eternal richness of his love for poor and needy sinners. The glory of the Bible is a Trinitarian glory. Secondly, the doctrine of the cross. So another point of uniqueness is, and Paul points to this in his letter to the Corinthians, is the fact that the gospel is news of a crucified Savior, a stumbling block to the Jews, foolishness to the Greeks. 
This is, not, this is what no one expected. It's unique. It's why no other religion has such a Savior. But again, here is the glory of the biblical message. Why did Jesus die? Why did he become a man? He did so because we have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And since God is infinitely glorious, our sins against him deserve an infinite punishment. We cannot pay the price. We're like the slave who owed 10,000 talents. Our moral debt to God is just unpayable by us. But here's what the cross means. Brother Jamie preached this for us so clearly. On the cross, God the Father made God the Son to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Our sin for His righteousness. You see, the fundamental problem of the world is not the crime or the wars or the overdoses or the civil strife that we see all around us. Because underneath all that, is the fact that men are in rebellion against God and they are hostile to him and they are enmity with him. And if you're not in Christ, you are an enemy with God. And he is our enemy. And we need to be reconciled to him. We need to be justified and forgiven. How? Only through Christ who bore the sins of men and women so that they might have his righteousness, so that they might be forgiven and justified and adopted into the family of God. That's the glory of the gospel. That's the glory of the message of Scripture. And it says that all, regardless of their past or the enormity of their sins, who come to Jesus, trusting him alone as Savior, will find that he will turn no one away. Come to Jesus this day and experience the glory of the gospel. And then finally, the doctrine of the sovereign grace of God. The doctrine of the cross is the reason why the gospel is the gospel of the grace of God. The Bible says that we do not earn or merit in any sense our salvation. We don't begin it. We don't finish it. God does. Salvation is of the Lord. Our hope is entirely in Him. We have no ground of boasting. We cannot congratulate ourselves for anything. Grace. And that's the only hope that a sinful humanity can have and, and I will add this, you know, <clears throat> people often talk about um, uh, there's, you know, all the, the division in our society and how one group looks down on another group and the plays for power that people see happening. But let me tell you something. The gospel really is the only thing that can provide a true basis for real humility and real unity. You see, we really can't be humble if you don't believe there is a God who is ultimately the giver of the gifts you enjoy. You can't be humble, like the songwriter said, if you're perfect in every way. If you think that you've earned your salvation by your good works, which practically every other religion teaches, right? Which is what the secular gospel that our culture teaches. But what the gospel does teach is that salvation is by grace through faith, not of ourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And that means that humility is the only proper response to our salvation and boasting is out of bounds. It means that I have, a, I have no right to look down on anyone. Anyone. It doesn't matter how big a sinner they are because what separates me from them isn't my wisdom or my righteousness, but only the grace of God. 
And if we really believe that, it would transform, totally transform our relationships. I mean, how can you be at odds with your brother? How can you be at odds with your wife? When you have been freely and sovereignly, by grace, reconciled to God. It is the grace of God that frees us from a religion of works, frees us from despair, from hopelessness, from anxiety, from trying to eke out our meaning and significance for our lives. It teaches us that our significance does not come from our accomplishments or from the way, what, the way other people grade us, but from our relationship with God, which is eternally secure, something we cannot lose no matter what happens to us in this world. The message of Scripture is the Word of God. Young people, it is the most important thing that you will ever hear. The things that you listen to on the internet or interact with on social media are scraps from compost compared to the meat and drink of the Word of God. And God is speaking in His Word today. I, I, love, I love that passage in Hebrews 3, as the Holy Spirit says. And then He quotes a psalm that was, what, a thousand years old. The Holy Spirit is speaking through his word, to you today. And I want to ask you, have you been listening? The Bible itself is a gift of grace. God did not have to speak to us. And it's through this word that God does his transforming and sanctifying work. As Paul says here, it is that which effectually worketh also in you that believe. So my prayer is that you and I will take this word and with the psalmist treasure it, and find that in our own experience that the doctrines and the promises and the commands of Scripture are more to be desired than gold, yea, than fine gold, sweeter than honey in the honeycomb. And may you embrace the God of the Bible, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, who speaks to us a word centered on the cross of Jesus Christ, which, from which flows all grace to anyone who believes. Amen.